Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. This is Shiloh Brooks at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And this is Jeff Black at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. We are back for some more Iliad by our friend Homer. Uh, we are working through this book by book, and we are up to book three. Shiloh's going to do a brief overview, and Jeff's going to do an opening question. All you, yes. Shiloh. Since these are micro episodes, I'm just going to cut to the chase. So in book three, um, Paris and Menelaus have a duel. Essentially, the two armies decide, well, what if we just fought it out? The two guys who are uh, the bows of Helen, um, maybe they should just fight it out. And so the short of it is that they, they do, prior to them fighting uh, it out, um, Priam comes and asks Helen, who are all these uh, wonderful Achaeans and these sorts of things. But essentially, they fight it out, and Menelaus is sort of... Um, taking Paris to the house. I mean, it's really embarrassing. Uh, he's really, you know, I mean, clearly one man is the greater man. And and, and so Aphrodite, who is uh, friends uh, of the Trojans, sees this. And in an embarrassing twist, at least I would be embarrassed if I were Paris, but it seems to me nothing embarrasses Paris. He is swept up by Aphrodite and uh, from the battlefield after he's getting his butt kicked and taken to his bedchamber Um and laid there to rest. And uh, meanwhile, um, Helen comes to him and he asks her to make love. And, you know, what a soft man. These people are out fighting and he's asking Helen to make love. And so the, meanwhile, the Achaeans are back on the battlefield and Menelaus and Agamemnon are thinking, look, we did it. We won. We should get to have Helen and go home. We made a promise the winner would get Helen. We, we won. Let's go home. And so uh, that's what happens short of it in book three. Yeah. Thanks, Shiloh. Yeah, so here, here's my question. Um, this book puzzles me. I've got a little bit of a preamble. It looks like, for the reasons that Shiloh just laid out, um, the war could end here. Because it looks like we got a deal, right, between the, the Greeks and the Trojans. If uh, Menelaus wins, Menelaus gets Helen and all her stuff, and uh, they swear friendship. If Paris wins, he gets Helen and all her stuff, and they swear friendship. Right. But there are a couple of details that bother me about this deal. Um, Agamemnon changes it. Right. He adds a stipulation. He says, yeah, those things. Plus, I want reparations from the Trojans and not just any old reparations, reparations of a scale that people will talk about them in the future. World historical memorable reparations. Right. This doesn't get discussed. The second thing is Priam who rides out, as Shiloh points out, it's very impressive, especially since uh, we'll notice that Priam spends most of his time in Troy. It doesn't come out to the very end again. Um, Priam rides out, but he doesn't stick around. And the reason he leaves is pretty lame. He says, oh, I can't watch Paris fight. I can't watch my son fight. Um, it looks to me like both Agamemnon and um, Priam think that this deal is not going to hold up. Right. And so my question is just, what is this book for? What does it do? And I've got a, a hypothesis here. Is this book supposed to tell us something about the difference between the Greeks and the Trojans? Maybe the difference in how they fight, maybe the difference in what they think of Helen. Um, but does it teach us about the difference between them? Any ideas on that? 
I mean, I think that's a fruitful vein to plumb. It's it's right in the beginning of the book, right? The the Trojans come out and take the field and are cheering and shouting, and uh, you know, very energetic. And the Greeks are silent. So right 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 away, Homer has framed it as you know, like you said, Jeff, a difference. Uh, I also really like that you know, you spotted and brought up the, the Agamemnon, the change in the deal, because it's set up a couple times, right? Like Menelaus kind of lays out the first deal. And I kind of like was trying to keep track of all the changes, right? Uh, at line 80, Hector offers uh, Helen and all her possessions. Uh, at line 100, Menelaus just says, to whichever of us death and fate are prepared, let him die, but let the other be parted with all speed. Um, and then Menelaus actually, and this is an interesting one too, is that Menelaus actually calls for Priam to cut the sheep's throat, but Agamemnon with the help of resourceful Odysseus cuts the sheep's throat. And then Agamemnon adds the, you know, let, let, let's do reparations. Right. And so it's a really interesting, I just want to point that out at 268, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of assembling to do the sacrifice and, and mine, and I'm using the, the Caroline Alexander translation, but at 268, you know, they're there and Priam's approaching and Agamemnon is approaching with Odysseus. And uh, the Alexander translation is, then at once, Lord of men Agamemnon stood to his feet and resourceful Odysseus. The noble heralds led forth the sacrificial offerings of oath for the gods and mixed wine in the bowl and poured water over the hands of the king. Then with his hands, the son of Atreus drew his knife. So Menelaus initially in the pitch says, you know, we're going to let Priam, you know, conduct the sacrifice. But uh, Agamemnon, you know, the lord of men at once stood to his feet and resourceful Odysseus next to him. So... There is something here that is definitely laying out a difference, and but I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure why Agamemnon kind of jumped up and slit the throats versus letting Priam do it. I wonder if you guys have any thoughts on that. Well, it does remind me of one other thing that we get here, um, and this is one of the things that that contributed to my puzzlement. Um, this is the um, book where we get uh, Helen. Um, kind of itemizing, identifying the various heroes as Priam sees them. And uh, that itemization was interesting to me because we had a, a big part of book two being devoted to telling us who was at Troy, right, on each side, who were the Greeks, who were the Trojans, fighting Trojans and allies, right? And so you might think, well, that's all Homer needs to do in order to lay out... Um, all the major characters, right? We've got the motive in book one, we've got the cast of thousands in book two, we know who's there. But now we get this interesting thing, we get the, the way the Greeks look to the Trojans, and in particular to Priam, who seems to have no problem watching things from Troy, by the way, right? Um, and the first person he notices is Agamemnon. He says, Agamemnon's not the biggest one, right? Uh, with Achilles not there, um, Ajax, the greater Ajax, Telamonian Ajax is the bigger, biggest one, right? But the first one he sees is Agamemnon, and it's because of the way Agamemnon moves through his troops. And so I think that's got to go together with this thing that you've seen, Brian, that Agamemnon uh, moves quickest 
to um, make the sacrifice, even though Priam was supposed to do it with Odysseus's help, right? And Agamemnon moves through his troops. The troops are silent and uh, they're vowing to support one another, right? Whereas the Trojans are noisy and they're threatening harm. And there's that interesting comparison, like, uh, like swans or cranes or something like that threaten harm to the pygmies that they fight, right? So yeah, there's, there's something, uh, it looks like this might contribute to our, our notion of Agamemnon's uh, quasi-vindication that we've been pursuing over the past couple books, right? Uh, he is really active in keeping his troops together. So Brian, you took the anti-Agamemnon position, is that right? <laughs> last time? And uh, Jeff, so I'm trying to understand, you're saying that um, th this is a kind of Homeric defense of Agamemnon's c capacities and virtue? Yes. And Okay, and then if that's the case, can you then bring out more um, what you have in mind about this difference? Do you mean a dispositional difference in the two leaders, Priam and Agamemnon, or do you mean a sort of dispositional or kind of cultural difference between the two peoples? or a, a difference in the way you mentioned the change that Agamemnon made with respect to the um, oaths, the way that they view Helen and the value of Helen and the, the importance of Helen? Yeah, I think all of these things have to be connected, but I don't know that I can make the connections, especially the way they view Helen um, uh, seems interesting to me. But the whole, is my memory right here, the whole motive for the single combat comes from Hector. Right, he starts it and he rebukes um, Paris or Alexander. Um, he's sometimes called uh, for being a bad uh, brother. Right, right, um, and and for being devoted to the wrong things. Um, and so I think that's somehow got to be connected also to the way that Priam is handling it, as opposed to the way Agamemnon's handling it. That's got to be connected to the silence of the Greeks, as opposed to the noise of the Trojans. So yeah, how can we how can we um, start to put those things together? Well, the rebuke to Hector, which kind of gets the ball, or the rebuke from Hector to Paris that kind of gets the ball rolling. I mean, we see Agamemnon doing the same thing in the next book, right? In book four, uh, which we'll talk about in the next episode. You know, he is kind of ranging around being an active commander and saying good things to some people, but saying not so good things to other people, including Odysseus, like Odysseus gets, um, a little, a little trash talk from Agamemnon. Like, why are you hanging back? Why don't you get up there? Um, so then it seems like maybe there's some kind of comparison that Homer's drawing out here between Agamemnon and Hector and that, you know, also separating this, this character Priam, from the kind of hurly-burly, from the, you know, kind of mundane aspects of combat where it's like, okay, you want me to show up for a couple minutes and do a sacrifice? Cool. You know, I'll go up there, I'll do my king wave, um, and then I'm going to take off again. So maybe there's some comparison that Homer's trying to draw out here, draw out here between Hector and Agamemnon. Is it, This is interesting, comparing Hector and Agamemnon, because yeah. Hector's rebuke is, I mean, I love it. Evil Paris, beautiful woman, crazy, cajoling, better had you never been born or killed unwedded. I mean, that's a bad thing to say to your brother. You lazy, woman, crazy, you know, disgusting, pretty boy. Uh, it would be better if you weren't born. And so there's this moral contempt of his brother. And he says, look, you know, I'm morally contemptuous of you. Show your virtue. Show me, show me that you're more than this. 
And I would say, I mean, this just occurs to me kind of as, as Brian, uh, respect, uh, with respect to what Brian said, Agamemnon is not a man free from moral contempt either. As we saw in the beginning, you take my uh, woman, I'm going to take your woman. And so it just seems to me that there's, um, if we're trying to compare Hector and Agamemnon, um, the, the most salient characteristic of the two is a certain sort of, of, of moral contempt uh, at another man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know w- whether we can run with that, but it seems important. Yeah, that, that strikes me as a good place to begin. So we might say that um, the flip side of the moral contempt is shame, that um, is the tool that each of these leaders is trying to induce in uh, their followers, right? Um, and the passage that Brian mentioned, we'll get to this in book four in our next episode, but where um, Agamemnon addresses Odysseus, he tries to make him feel shame as well, right? So this, this is a tool of these leaders, um, and they're not hesitant about using it. Um, one of them is the king above the other kings, right? Um, Priam is the father above a bunch of sons, Right, and that seems to me maybe to change um, the force of Hector's shame. Right, uh, he and Priam are kind of stuck together; they're family, um, and that might indicate a kind of qualification, or it might give Priam. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Paris and and um, Agam- and uh, uh, Hector are stuck together; they're family. Right, right? and that that might give. Um, Paris, a kind of um, shield against Hector's contempt, right? Um, whereas for Agamemnon, uh, maybe, you know, using shame is, uh, for him, a much more effective way of trying to keep his coalition together because he is the final word, uh, mm-hmm. unlike Hector. Wouldn't you say it's more dangerous for Agamemnon because, because Agamemnon, I mean, Achilles can be like, all right then, see ya, you know, right. whereas Paris, as you said, Hey, I'm your brother, man. Um, you know, I can't. And so, I mean, on the one hand, is it more effective for Agamemnon or is it, is it in a way more risky precisely because he can alienate? Well, I kind of, I kind of love this line of thought for, for two reasons. Um, well, actually a couple, I'll give you three, uh, and I'll try to be quick, but one is the fact that we get the Agamemnon and Menelaus conversation in the next book. So we should kind of be on the lookout for that, that, you know, Hector, we're seeing Hector in Paris at the beginning of book three and Hector's basically like, you're a schmuck, you know, you're my brother and you're a schmuck. Um, whereas when Agamemnon, when Menelaus gets wounded in book four, Agamemnon seems, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stress seems to be very concerned about his brother. Seems, I'll say it one more time. Uh, the other piece that I wanted to bring up is this idea of someone else in the hierarchy that is not on the battlefield, right? So Priam, you know, pops in, but then pops out. And he is kind of the ultimate authority because he's the, you know, the king of, you know, the generals, the leading generals in the Trojan side. And you also have Achilles, who's not here, uh, who you can make a case, well, is, is fairly obviously the greatest warrior. And you could make a case, I think, that he should maybe be in charge of the entire Greek force. So you have both of these characters that are kind of maybe in charge, but not there. Uh, and I, I bring it up because of the last book. I won't, I won't spoil 
too much that far ahead. But when these two men meet and talk, they seem to have a, a muy simpatico relationship that I've always found very interesting. So we might be seeing some of the kind of um, pieces of the puzzle uh, put in, you know, as early as book three here on that relationship between Priam and Achilles. Yeah, the absence of Achilles from the picture that Priam sees from Troy when he's asking Helen to, to identify the various um, big and mobile officers that he sees in the, in the assembled Greeks um, is very interesting, right? Because would Achilles be both bigger than everybody except Ajax and as mobile and therefore as eye-catching as Agamemnon and therefore the first that Priam asked to be identified, right? So his absence, um, I think, is uh, does qualify all the judgments that are made um, by Priam with Helen's help. And yeah, Shiloh points to the exact difficulty. Um, could it be that the um, Agamemnon both has more flexibility and runs a greater risk in his use of shame? Um, as opposed to what Priam does. Priam seems to float above the fray and therefore to keep things um, to some extent uh, buckled down, right? There are certain questions that don't get opened up because he's not going to um, participate, right? And so the dispute between uh, Hector and Paris then uh, could just be cast as a brotherly disagreement, right? Um, it's, it's interesting to me, there's this whole theme, and maybe we can touch on it and see if we can fold it into um, our conversation, the whole theme of the meaning of Helen's beauty, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. And um, related to that, uh, Paris's skills in the arts of love, whether those are good things or bad things as well, right? His beauty. Um, that really seems to be a thematic question for the Trojans, but I don't get the sense that it's a question for the Greeks. Does that seem fair to the two of you? The, when you say a question, uh, you have in mind, do the Greeks um, blame the beauty of Helen uh, or lament that beauty? Right, or even um, say, well, despite the harm that she might attract for being as beautiful as she is, it's worth it, right? You know, this is... A possibility that might come up uh, as a result of opening it as a question. But there's just not as much discussion, uh, I think, among the Greeks as there is among the, the Trojans, with the one exception being Helen. She herself has a kind of view about her own attractiveness and her own attachment to Aphrodite that seems comparable to the, the Trojans' perplexity and consideration of that question. Mm-hmm. And remind me, what is her attitude toward her beauty? She, she, yeah, she says hateful me. That's what something I thought, like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, and then she turns around and rebukes Paris for um, being less of a manly man than um, than Menelaus is. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that that seems to contribute to this um, distinction between the the Trojans and the Greeks as well. For some reason, it looks like the Greeks don't chiefly see Helen as um, somebody who's beautiful and who's a problem because she's beautiful. I see. It's yeah. more for them a problem or a problem, a question of justice or something. Yeah. She, and Zeus. whereas, okay, this is, and then, hmm, interesting. So they're, si they're you, you mentioned they were silent. And so mm. they, 
they're also concerned with justice. And now I'm sort of thinking of the Trojans as these loud, beauty-appreciating barbarians. I don't know. I mean, it just I'm trying to draw, to, to follow your lead here and, and to try to see the differences between the two. What does the attitude toward beauty, um, how is that evinced in the behavior of the two peoples, either on the battlefield or, or just in some? Yeah. And I think something to just keep in mind is that because um, this is going to come up later, is that when we're talking about justice, right, is that this is all happening and sacred oaths are performed to make this a truce, right? So they are, they are officially trucing. Uh, nobody's supposed to harm, you know, each other while this battle goes on between Menelaus and Paris, right? And so the, the backdrop is like no one can harm another, while these two are fighting. Uh, and so I want to bring that up just because in book four, we're going to talk about the gods, uh, whether or not they kind of buy into justice, uh, as well as the Trojans and the Greeks. Uh, so I just want to throw that out there. I want, another thing I wanted to ask about in, in terms of this is uh, Priam's attitude towards Helen, like how he's affected. And you know, he, there's two statements that he makes in, in this book three. And, and one is, you know, he says where he doesn't blame Helen mm. that, that, you know, Hey, this is just the gods. It's not your fault. You know, don't worry about it. You didn't do anything wrong. This is just the gods being the gods, which might be a little foreshadowing to book four as well. Uh, and then the only thing he says at the, at one um, he's talking about what's, he's explaining to her what's going on. And he says, uh, Alexandros and Menelaus, or Paris and Menelaus, beloved by Ares, are to fight with their great spears on your account, and you will be called wife of that man who is victor. And, and that's it. So it's just, I mean, it, granted he's talking to Helen, but it's just interesting that, you know, he doesn't mention any other parts of the deal, right? That, that, <laughs> the stuff. Yeah, yeah, the stuff. Or yeah. even that the Trojans and the Greeks, like, will leave, you know, mm. which is what Menelaus talks about. Menelaus is, is kind of focused in his language on, you know, one of us is going to win and then we'll separate, right? He doesn't even, I don't think, mention Helen, right? He just says they're going to fight whoever, somebody's going to die, somebody's not, and then the, the forces will separate. So to me, that's Menelaus kind of saying, like, whatever happens here, at least we'll not, won't have a war anymore. And Priam just says, yeah, like one of these guys is going to die and you'll, you'll, you'll be stuck with the one that's alive. So it's just interesting how they're all framing this. And I think that that kind of gets to the point of justice is kind of depends on the character and depends on how that character's frame of reference kind of affects their idea of justice. Yeah, and I guess I, I'm just inclined to add that Priam, I think, thinks of it chiefly in terms of family building, if I can put it that way, right? Yeah. That this is somehow connected to the the way erotics is more at work in the core of who the Trojans are, and anger or thumotics is more at work in the core of of who the Greeks are. Right? The Greeks are outraged. Priam is thinking about about sexy stuff. Right? Who's going to have kids? Who's going to be married to whom? Right? That's how it holds together for him. I think. But sorry, Shiloh. So I was just gonna say, so it's not primarily a question of justice. I'm just trying to, to mm. come back here at the end to what you said at the beginning. How are they different? It's not primarily a question of justice for the Trojans. It is primarily a question of justice. And by it, I mean Helen for the Greeks. And this animates the behavior. Does it also color the gods who favor each people? I just noticed Aphrodite seems to favor the Trojans. Zeus 
although this is difficult because doesn't Apollo favor the Trojans as well? And isn't he bound up with justice? Or In, in other words, the behavior of, a, of an Apollinian human being, pardon the Nietzschean reference, is not exactly um, Trojan in character. And so I'm just trying to make sense of the differences, the justice-injustice dichotomy that you guys have teased out in terms of the, the motives of the gods. But that's a big question. Can I ask Can I ask two quick questions? I know we're kind of running a little short on time here, but yeah. one is, has, has Paris and Helen had a kid yet? You know, this has been going on for, this war's been going on for nine years. She's been with him for at least nine years. She mentions that she left a newborn with Menelaus. Uh, so in terms of the family building that you mentioned, Jeff, I'm wondering, and I just can't remember if uh, Helen and Paris have had a kid yet. I don't think so. Uh, and I think when we see her in the Odyssey, there's no mention of, of any offspring resulting. So that's interesting. Just, yeah. you know. The, the, <laughs> After the, nine years? Nine years and nothing's <laughs> happened. Paris is not a, you know, he's yeah, not yeah. taking it easy. Yeah, no, he's, he's not. <laughs> just off the battlefield and he's, he's ready to go. The other question I had, and this might be just a little esoteric, but it, it just kind of there's a reason it's in here, but I'm not sure what the reason is. And it's when Menelaus and Paris are fighting. This is around 360. Uh, and the son of Atreus drew a silver studded sword and raising his arm struck, raising his arm struck the helmet ridge. And on both sides of the ridge, his, his sword shattered into three into four pieces fell from his hand. Then the son of Atreus cried out, looking up to broad heaven, Father Zeus, no other one of the gods is more malicious than you. I thought surely, I thought I surely had my revenge on Alexandros for his wickedness, but now my sword is shattered in my hand, my spear flown from my hand in vain, and I have not beaten him. He spoke, and springing forward, seized Alexandros' horsehair-crested helmet, and wheeling about, dragged him towards the strong, grieved Achaeans. I just wondered about those two images. The image of, first of all, why the heck do you hit your helmet with your sword? That just seems dumb. But to hit it so hard that it shatters seems very interesting. And like the low-hanging fruit there is some kind of phallic symbol. Um, but I'm, I'm open for whatever we think that is. But just the idea that um, he, he jumps forward and grabs Alexandros basically by his ponytail. And, and starts dragging him back to the Greeks. Why why do we have this image of a broken sword and this image of, you know, this, uh, you know, uh, attractive youth being pulled by like a ponytail back to the Greeks? Well, I, I do have this one thought about um, their single combat and it relates to your description of it as stupid. Um, I think it's as stupid as possible, if I can put it this way. This is a contest of strength, not of skill. Um, who throws first is selected by lot. There's no circling. There's no dodging. There's no cunning, uh, looking for the opening. This is first you hit me as hard as you can, and then I hit you as hard as I can. Right? And when our spears are done, then swords, and when swords are done, then hands and rocks and whatever it takes, right? Um, so it looks like this, there's something, um, there's an attempt for this to be pure, a pure determination of superior strength. And so we get all these details about how far the spear point goes and through what, 
right? And what part of the body it hits. Um, so I guess I guess I'd say yeah. It seems to me that um, the single combat is as stupid as possible um, for an intelligent reason, if I could put it that way. They're trying to show something. Um, but beyond that, I, I don't know. Once you run out of weapons, you got to grab the guy, and maybe the uh, that plume is the easiest thing to grab him by. Might be bigger than he is. Yeah, I mean the whole thing seems when when you talk about it, uh, when you talk about the the javelins, the spears, the whole thing seems even more sexual, right? This this phallic symbol, this penetrative um, thing where. Uh, you know, it goes through Menelaus's shield, but then stops, or goes through some of the shield, then stops. It goes through Paris's shield and his armor, and just kind of nicks him. And there's some blood, um, but then you know this broken sword, and this uh, you know grabbing by a ponytail and dragging kind of thing. I can't help but think that this is at least some allusion to the situation we find ourselves in right now. Um, and I don't know how, you know, I'm trying to remember how much Menelaus kind of wooed Helen in the initial kind of phase of their relationship. Something tells me he's he doesn't have a tremendous amount of game. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's just interesting that these are the images we're getting, we're getting fed by Homer. I, I guess I will. This, this is a tricky territory, but I guess I will say uh, maybe one thing. The, the thesis that we've been developing that the Greeks are somehow... Um, in it for the justice and the Trojans are somehow aware that they're in this trouble because of sex, that the two things might be overlaid in the way you're describing the images right now, right, of the single combat, right? So you can say, yeah, yeah, there's phallic imagery. Yeah, there's a kind of sexualization to this. And it's also a kind of pure expression of anger, right? I'm going to hold still and you hit me as hard as you can. And then I'll, you hold still and I'll hit you as hard as I can. Right, and the results will show who deserves to be the winner here. Right, there's something um, straightforwardly angry about that too, um, and so yeah, maybe you're right, and Homer's being clever and trying to mix the two things in this single combat. I, I also like that, and now we're over time, so I'll try to wrap it up. Uh, I also like that as a counterpoint to the narrative as a whole, right? This idea that like one side's going to stand on one side and hit the other side as hard as possible. The other side's going to sit on the other side and hit the other as hard as possible. Whoever wins, wins, which is not what happens in this book, right? That there is a ton of uh, plotting, a ton of what is said and unsaid, a ton of things that are going on behind the scenes that we have to infer, which to a certain extent seems like a lot of relationships right that there is there is what is what is said but then there's a lot of what is unsaid and that there is um a lot of tension that you don't necessarily know how to um how to relax or how to how to how to solve um mm. and that sometimes when you're in those situations um that you know violence can occur when you're at impasse in terms of you know human interaction, so I don't know. Uh, yeah, so we're 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 a little over thirty. Um, any any closing points or justice and beauty things to remember? Trojans and Greeks, they're different. Maybe what other what other final points do we want to put on this one? 
The only thing I was thinking is it's not, Jeff, you mentioned maybe Homer's trying to mix these two things together. I would, I would wonder if you could say it more precisely. These two things are mixed together simply, and Homer is merely illustrating that rather than forcing them together. And that sounds odd that violence and, well, I mean, I'd say it, but the violence and sex could be somehow, <laughs> you know, related. But uh, mm-hmm. I wonder if Homer's not touching on something deeply psychological, which, you know, uh, deserves a lot of attention and thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. Great. All right. Well, thanks, Shiloh. Thanks, Jeff. Book three, uh, kind of complete, but it's Homer, so it's not really ever complete. Uh, and we will be back with book four here shortly. So thank you, listeners. And uh, tune in next time. Thank you.